Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hayes' Higher Learning. I am your host, Ashley Hayes, and I am so excited. Today's episode is all about intellectual property, and we're having a conversation on licensing royalties and residuals. And I have invited one of my favorite people in the world, my godfather, Ed Lance. So I'm going to give you all an informal bio. I met Ed Lance about 31 years ago. The story goes, he was around the day I was born and has been my godfather father ever since. Um, And I love our relationship. I love having a bonus parent that I can call for advice. And he's been such a part of my life and my career these past few years. So I'm going to give you his formal bio, um, and then we'll bring Mr. Lance to the table. So Ed is a corporate attorney practicing intellectual property law at Archer Daniels Midland, a Fortune 100 global agribusiness. Before ADM, Ed spent nearly 10 years at McDonald's Corporation, where he represented the marketing and communications group in the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Ed began his legal career as a member of the intellectual property group at Kirkland and Ellis LLP in Chicago. He also teaches intellectual property at Loyola University, Chicago. Ed earned two undergraduate degrees from Southern Illinois University and a Juris Doctorate degree from Loyola University of Chicago Law School. He currently serves on the Board of Directors for Youth Guidance and is the former chairman of the Board of Directors for the Hyde Park Art Center. He and his wife, Tracy, live in Olympia Fields, Illinois, and have five children and four grandchildren, and of course, me, a godchild. <laughs> so hello, Godfather. How I'm are doing you? great. How are you? I am good. It is so good to finally have you on my show. I have waited a long time for this conversation. I'm proud of everything you've accomplished, and it really does feel good now being a contributor to it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So I know you primarily as my godfather. And over these last few years, especially since I've been a full-time artist, I've gotten to know you as an attorney. Do you mind talking to me about your career path and how you even ended up in intellectual property law? Um, Yeah. You know, I like to tell people that uh, I got here with smoke and mirrors, meaning, you know, it was just meant to be. I, I never had a plan. Uh, It just happened. So out of college, I was going to go to graduate school and then go to law school. But uh, while I was in graduate school, I was bored. I was in graduate school at night and didn't have a job during the day. So I decided to take a part time job. I took that job at a a law firm in Chicago as a as a really as a as a clerk. Um, It was an IP boutique firm that represented blue chip clients, and uh, I just wanted to be exposed to the law. So I took that job and I was the guy who filled the copy paper in the machine and uh, and and updated the library books when we actually used books to do our legal research and um, (laughs) and took it from there. I, I, I was there for less than a year and I asked to do paralegal work and um, uh, they tried to make it seem like I wasn't able to do paralegal work because I didn't have a certificate to do that. But, uh, you know, I convinced them that I was certainly capable and, and that's what happened. I started doing paralegal work and from there, I, you know, I stuck around a little bit longer than I thought. Um, it took me about eight years before I actually went to law school after that, but then I, I went away to law school and, um, graduated law school and, and ended up at Kirkland and Ellis. So, you know, it, it's been a it's been a heck of a career uh, considering how it started. Yeah, and it's Kirkland and Ellis where you met my mom. 
No, at, she was uh, actually she was at the the first firm that I worked at at Patterson McCullough. We were, both worked there. Um, so I, I like the way you said uh, I was just around when you were born. Like it sounded a little weird. Like I'm just hanging around the the um, <laughs> the maternity ward. But yeah, we worked together, and uh, and of course your dad and and your mom and I were were good friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you've been in my life since that very day. (laughs) Um, One of the most valuable things that you have contributed to my career is you have helped me understand recording contracts and really advocating for me to be paid fair wages. Do you think that artists like myself should invest in retaining an attorney? Are there more accessible ways that owners of small businesses can get help with understanding contracts and understanding their rights? Um, yeah, you know, investing in, a, in an attorney is, uh, is you know, it's, it's based on your resources, really. Uh, so I can't say that you need to do that um, unless you can do that. I think it really helps to have that expert on your side. Uh, but there are so many other resources. Um, artists and, you know, particularly writers uh, are, are certainly used to research, right? And it, it depends on the type of writing, I guess you do, but it doesn't matter. I think you're, you're accustomed to research. And that's what I think has to happen uh, with, with artists. I think they have to take the time to, to do the research in the legal area. Some will say, oh, you know, it's confusing. I don't understand it. It's legalese and I don't understand these terms. But in, in a way it is and in a way it isn't. Uh, there are a lot of resources out there these days that even attorneys use. Uh, for for our continuing legal education requirement, so I you know I stay on top of a lot of this stuff by going out to uh, the resources that I have here in Illinois uh, to to watch videos on the latest uh, developments in the law. There's no reason why uh, an artist couldn't watch those videos. They're free. They're online. Uh, you just you know have to do some searching and make sure you go to the right sites and, and get a hold of them. Uh, so there's a lot out there. The artist, uh, I'm sorry, the authors guild. Uh, is an organization that also has a ton of resources. You have to be a member, and I'm not sure what the membership is, but I'm going to say that it's nominal and affordable given you know, the, the wealth of information that you're going to get there. So you don't have to have an attorney, but I, I tell my corporate clients, they may be in marketing and communications and sales and things like that, but I say that my job is to be sure that, um, that, I, that I create just a little bit of lawyer in each one of them and that they channel that lawyer when they can't reach me and, and they have to ask, you know, answer basic mm. questions. So I think artists should be the same. You know, you should know what uh, what the difference is between an, a license and an assignment. You know, some things we may talk about here today. You got to know those things. You got to be able to, to talk to publishers and producers and, you know, folks that are asking you to sign contracts and, and at least be able to spot some some major issues in, in some of those terms. That's really good to know, the author's field. I will even look into that. I didn't know that. And I like that part about creating a little lawyer because I feel like you created a little lawyer in me. Oh, yeah. And I, it, she just shows up. <laughs> That's right. And so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I invited you to this conversation was your advice was a key factor in my decision to self-publish instead of signing with a popular a popular publishing company. And I remember that after reading the very first sentence, you immediately said, no, you can't sign that. What language or phrasing triggered that response? And what would the consequences have been if I had signed it? So, um, if I recall that 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 agreement, um, it it was a publishing agreement. I won't, you know, name the publisher, but uh, 
It was your standard cookie cutter language when it comes to the very first article, which is usually granting publishing rights. And that first line said that you were going to grant and assign exclusively to them each and every right in the work under the laws, right? And 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 so on and so forth. The yeah. that was a, a red flag to me right away. Now that is standard language, I must admit, in publishing agreements. The problem with that, it was twofold. First of all, if you have leverage, which most small you know, authors, uh, artists, they don't have a whole lot of leverage. So let's just, just, you know, unveil unveil that right away. Uh, I'm, I'm talking pie in the sky when I say you can change these things, but I, we know that you can't because the publisher is, is lawyered up first of all. And this contract is what we call usually called uh, a contract of adhesion, where this is the cookie cutter contract. And they'll tell you, we don't make changes. We have to have this contract apply equally to everybody we do business with. So we know that that's not necessarily the case. When you have leverage, you can change language like the author grants and assigns. I had an issue with assigning. Assigning means you are transferring your right in that work to the publisher. And unless you have a term for that, right? If you have a, a term limit on that transfer, that's that's fine. That's not usually the case. It's usually for the life of the copyright, right? And the life of the copyright is the life of the author plus 75 years. So we know that that's a long term. Uh, the law now also has some uh, uh, language in the Copyright Act that now gives a little bit more uh, leverage back to the author that says after 35 years, an author can terminate and then have those rights revert back to them. But that's a long time to wait. Um, I like to see 65, at least, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll be you're pretty old, right? Um, the, the, I'd like to see uh, authors at least try to to give the the publisher a an exclusive license, right? So now they have an exclusive like and long term they have an exclusive license uh, that they give to the publisher in the right, and then you start limiting the right, the right to publish, right? The right to publish the work, uh, maybe even the right to display the work, and some other things that they'll need when they have to promote the work the right to distribute the work, right? So you can give them a time-limited right as well as a scope-limited right. Copyright is broken up into a lot of different pieces that you, the creator, control. So you can give them that, that right uh, for a limited basis, limited time, limited scope. Uh, you can retain then some rights for yourself. And, and you can then even give them non-exclusive rights to some of the rights you retain for yourself. Some of the key things that 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 I felt was that, that were were problematic for that agreement was it included that they you were assigning to them the right to perform the work publicly, the right to display the work publicly. Well, what then have you kept for yourself? There was nothing in the contract that said that the artist will retain certain rights, and including these that I just mentioned. So that that meant that you, as the as the author of that work would have to go back to them to get a license to perform it. That's not tenable. That's not something that I think authors and artists uh, should should find themselves uh, uh, tied down with. But again, it comes to leverage. If if you've got your first piece of work and you've got a publisher that's interested in purchasing uh, that right or or having those rights transferred, you're likely going to go ahead and sign the deal. Uh, You hear a lot about 
how musicians and and uh, songwriters just got totally taken when when they signed deals like this. Well, that's because they you know they were eager to get that first deal. So I, I like to tell authors to be patient. Uh, and if you don't have the leverage, you don't have the resources uh, to get a lawyer to to, to create at least uh, a fair fight. Uh, think about walking away from a deal like that. Um, it's hard to do. I get it. I'm not going to pretend that I don't get mm-hmm. it. You know, you're writing uh, and you're trying to, you're not just creating art. You're trying to create art that you can distribute to, to the masses. And that's what a publishing agreement allows you to do. A publishing uh, arrangement allows you to do. So I get that part. But to the extent that you can get some of this language changed, try to get it changed. And here's the thing. I would, if you're going to assign exclusive rights to a publisher at least limit the scope uh, to those things that they need in order to produce the book. So the right to reproduce the work, the right to to, to produce to produce the work to begin with, distribute the work, display the work. Uh, but but the right to perform publicly was was one of those things that I you know I think as we negotiated with them, we we gave up a little bit and said, look, if we're gonna transfer this right over, it won't be uh, as it said in the in the contract, each and every right in the work under the law. No, it's not. We can't do that. So we tried to limit the scope and, you know, uh, you being as smart as you are, learn, you know, that it's it's, at some point you have to walk away from a deal so that you don't hurt yourself down the road. And and I can just say anecdotally, I've seen a lot of artists uh, give up their rights because I've been on the other side of these deals. Uh, You know, when I was with big companies, uh, particularly McDonald's, where we did a lot of uh, agreements with talent, we insisted on owning what was created, but you know, uh, we didn't. We weren't a publisher, but as a as a company that hired artists to do work for us that we then used in advertising and and uh, promotional things, we wanted to have all those rights. We wanted to be able to say that this is ours. Well, that's a work for hire arrangement, which is a little different, uh, but it's it's something that uh, you know I've insisted on when I'm on the side of of uh, of the the company. Mm-hmm. But I would also say that in that position, right, the company is offering some, I guess the term is consideration, right, for those rights. Um, what consideration would have made this particular agreement more fair? Do you think that there's a fair amount that a company can pay for these rights? That's a good question. So uh, I hate when people answer and say that's a good question. That's <laughs> that's uh, that's the that's the twenty five thousand dollar question, and and uh, and not in in relation to what is fair compensation, but that is a that's the critical issue. That's the critical issue, but it's two parts to that and to my answer. A, I mm-hmm. think that there's always a dollar amount <laughs> where you will say yes, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, because the reason you're even considering. Uh, this deal is because, again, you want to get your work published and you want to get that work published and distribute it to the to the masses. So if you self-publish, there's some costs associated with that. There's some inex, you know, you, you, there's some uh, experience that you you bring to that. Um, there's some some uh, efficiencies that that the publisher brings to it that you don't have. So there's reasons to say yes to a deal like this where you're going to assign your rights. So I say that you tr- you try as much as you can to run that number up as much as you can, as high as you can. Those percentages on the royalty, the advance, right? You can you can try all of those things if you're going to uh, assign away your rights. But the second part to that is there is no, there may not be a dollar amount that makes you walk away from the right to your work. That's your baby. 
right? That's your baby. You're giving that baby Mm -hmm. to the publisher and saying, it's now yours. I can never, ever exercise a right unless I come back to you uh, to perform that work and to do other things with that work. And what price do you put on that? That's what a lot of artists don't really think about. What happens when that, that one poem you write uh, that then is published by this publisher that, 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 that you know, strong-armed you if, you, if you will, into assigning away all rights in the work. Uh, and then that piece of work becomes your seminal piece of work. It's the thing that people know you by. And now you go to a concert uh, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, you go to a, a slam or whatever, and you can't perform it unless you get a license back in that publishing agreement, which is one of the things you can do. You know, you've assigned the right to them and you get a perpetual, uh, um, probably non-exclusive, but a perpetual license to perform the work uh, royalty free. Right. So you don't ever have to pay them. You don't have to come to them for, no- for notice. So there are ways to get it. Right. So you can give them the right full right. And they own the right to the work, but then you get a license back that if you're going to do that, then that at least gives you the right to perform your seminal work in perpetuity. Uh, But they're going to be the ones getting paid on that. (laughs) That's the one, you know, when you're performing it, Mm -hmm. that's good for them because you're going to say, go out and and get my book. And that book is going to go, you know, that book is being sold by that publisher. Of course, you're getting a royalty. So sales benefit you as well. But just know how that all will work. Um, when you when you sign an agreement like this. And the consideration is important. The compensation is important. Uh, and you need to know exactly what your value is. Uh, and you can do that by consulting with folks like the Authors Guild. And, and, uh, and if you can, you know, get a lawyer or an agent, literary agent who can represent you. But, but there, there is a dollar value that may actually lead to you giving up uh, full right in the property. Mm-hmm. And that was my issue with the agreement. Once you pointed it out to me, I said, you know, what if I wanted to make smoke a short film or if I wanted to make smoke a long film or if I wanted to break it down and sell the pieces or create mm-hmm. a short story. Now I have to ask them for permission to use work that I created. That's right. mm-hmm. And that just <laughs> Now, now they may, <laughs> and so they, they may I, say okay I, to that because they actually want to capitalize on your creativity, right? But, <clears throat> but in that situation, they're licensing you to do that, right? So they're they're actually going to benefit, and I think that that's smart. Uh, but they may also say, "Thanks, we don't need you to do the derivative. We want to turn this into a short film, but we don't need you to write it. We're going to have somebody else write it, and they don't need your permission because." they actually have the right to create derivative works. That's one of the, that's in the scope of rights that you've now signed away when you say each and every right in the work is being assigned to them, right? So yeah. so just know that. So it's important that, uh, but they, again, they could come back to you and say, you know, we want you to do that. So, but they may not. Mm-hmm. You got to mm-hmm. consider that. And so oftentimes, you know, from my experiences, people tend to be kind of hush hush about agreements. And so people don't always know what's fair. Do you think there are ways to increase transparency in the industry? Do you think that that's a good idea? And if so, um, how can artists ask for transparency? Um, in this particular case, I think that artists, again, without a whole lot of leverage, um, will not get a whole lot of transparency. Uh, they, you know, when you start asking a lot of questions and start talking about my lawyer said, 
Um, these publishers are not going to uh, be all that responsive. They're in a volume business. You know, they're, they're actually trying to get that mm-hmm. artist who doesn't have a publishing contract but has some talent. Right. That's who they want. Uh, they want to be able to sign somebody who does not have uh, any experience with uh, having a published before. So um, so they don't have the uh, the um, they don't have a reason to be uh, transparent. So you have to you have to do certain things that kind of cause the transparency. A, and, and this is this this is sort of uh, my way of of making it a little more fair. It's not it's not something that I think is going to always be success, successful. But a, you have to uh, ask for the written agreement uh, well in advance of what whatever the timetable is that they set. Right. So it's none of that you know, here's the agreement. We need you to sign it by the next, by the end of this week so we can get started. You know, you right away, you say, mm-hmm. I'm going to need a little more time than that. My family's lawyer needs to look at this. You know, my family and my lawyer needs to look at this or whatever, you know, but, but even if that's not true, you, you know, that's your intent is to try to find a lawyer to look at. Right. right? So I need, I'm going to need to, to, to uh, extend that time. Uh, if they say th- that's that's not going to work for us, then you know you're dealing with uh, a publishing company that that's really only interested in taking advantage of of folks who are new uh, to this um, situation. The the other thing is I, I I've tried this; it doesn't always work. Um, I, when I when I was on the big corporate side, I I, I was uh, not always successful either. But don't send me a PDF of our agreement. I, I think you've heard me say this mm-hmm, many yeah. times and everybody, my clients hear me say this now, even at big, big corpse. Um, an agreement is between two parties. No one owns the agreement. It's actually jointly owned. What happens mm-hmm. is the big player usually is the one that controls the creation of the document. And that's how you know who has the most leverage right away. Because when they send you a PDF, and you say, I need this in Word so I can make some changes. They say, oh, well, we, our lawyer doesn't allow us to send this out in Word, our agreement out in Word. And, I'm, and, and I push back and say, you're right. It is our agreement. It's your agreement and my agreement. So I want it in Word. Please send it to me in Word. Now, of course, I'm usually very nice about it and cordial and trying to convince people and persuade people. But, in the, but, but my tone at the end of the day is, is really forceful enough so they understand that it's not your decision mm-hmm. whether or not you're going to send this to me in Word. It's, it's something that we require. And, if you, and, and, and by the way, when you ask the question, well, why is it that you only want it in PDF? And most people, you know, the business side, they may say, well, I don't know. It's just our lawyers just insist on it. I say, well, it seems to me that you don't want, you're not allowing the best format for me to make revisions that are, are, that are fair uh, and, and that are in my favor versus having this one-sided version of this document that I can't modify, at least electronically. And, and to be honest with you, it, it, you know, it, it's, just, it's not something that uh, we should have to do uh, if we receive it in PDF. I shouldn't have to print it, write on it. Or open it up and, and get in the comments and put comment boxes all over the place. No, I want to strike out a word and type in the new word, right? Um, so it's more efficient that way as well. But they, uh, the publishers are going to insist on, and producers are going to insist on it, it uh, being in the PDF because it discourages changes. So that's one way to make at least the process a little more fair. Uh of course, the mm-hmm. other way to make it fair is, you know, I tell people all the time, I mean, leverage is something that crosses all platforms and all walks of life. You need leverage. Um, and 
the way you get leverage in this uh, scenario is to have options. You have to have options. Competition. You have to create competition. (laughs) You have to, you have, even if you're, you know, faking the, 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 the interests of another suitor, you have to at least make it seem as though this is not the only option you have. And it's better, it's real leverage and not bluffing if you actually have other options. And that doesn't mean that it has to be a viable option. I mean, if you have one publisher that's a, and we're talking about usually some smaller publisher. We're not talking, you know, if this is uh, Michelle Obama, she's, you know, she's going to, she's not going to any publisher. They're all coming to her. So let's, you know, that's not the scenario we're talking about. That's, that's true leverage. Uh, but in, 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 when you're talking about smaller players, smaller publishers and, and little known or unknown uh, authors, then you, you, the author, you have to create the leverage. You have to have this planned out all, the, all along. You know, you write something that's, that's uh, impactful and something that people, you know, people uh, like uh, right away. You know, as you compile that work, start talking to publishers. You may not even be ready to put a, 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 a compilation of your work out, but still start talking to publishers, understand the process. Because now when you do get ready, you have relationships. You've got two publishers over here in California. Mm. You got two over here in New York. You got two down in Georgia that you've talked to along the way. My, my book is now ready. I'd like for you to look at it, right? Now you can at least say, so they it's five out of the six pass. The sixth one is interested. At least you can say truthfully, you know what? It's with five other publishers right now. I like what you're doing. I like the, the way you came out, you know, uh, with the offer. But let me at least uh, get back to these other five and see, it, you know, let me tie up those ends before we we start talking about, you know, terms. Um, and even then, when you, you know, when, then when they send you that draft uh, in Word uh, versus a PDF, you know, you look at it and you say, I can live with these. I can live with this. I can't live with that. You send it back to them. And you're not making any commitments. You're not signing a letter of intent or a memorandum of understanding or some other, you know, document that at least ties you into having to negotiate with them. And and, and if you don't like that deal, you walk away from that deal. Uh, that That's what I say. Now, it's not my you know, I, I, it, I, I'm not I'm not the one that has to pay the light bill. Right. I'm not the one who has to get the groceries. So um, I, I think that, you know, you you get as much advice as you can and then you make a smart decision, whatever uh, decision works best for you. But I do caution uh, artists, you know, be careful not to give away uh, your rights uh, for for uh, in perpetuity if you can avoid it. Mm-hmm. That is such valuable advice and it's not only valuable in publishing it's just a valuable in life we're constantly in agreement with each other and agreements with people they need to be our agreements not something that you've decided and that you get to own you know and I really I really appreciate you saying that and people getting to hear you say it yeah and I have a question um this is a personal question for me what advice would you give someone who's thinking about going to law school and the current economy current economy and do you recommend it as a viable career option um so i'm gonna uh, have to admit that i don't know the cost of law school right now um Mm -hmm. so it's going to be difficult for me to talk about it in the current economy because that's what matters you know how much is it going to cost to go to law school versus if i don't go to law school and uh you know continue down the path i'm 
I'm going, am I, am I actually going to still make, you know, pretty good money and don't have to, and I'm not saddled with, um, debt, law school debt. And if you, unless you're paying for it, uh, you know, or some parent or grandparent is paying for it. So I, I but I will say it this way, what the, I don't, I don't think this, uh, changes from generation to generation, um, an investment in your education is always a good investment. Uh, I'll take it a step further and say, as I now know, for a kid from the South Side of Chicago who came from nothing and went on to college and graduate school and law school, uh, that had I not done that, I would not have had the options that I have. I started this off by talking about doing this with smoke and mirrors. The smoke and the mirrors really have been those pieces of paper that I earned in, in, in college and mm. associates of bachelors, uh, spending some time in graduate school before going to law school and getting that Juris doctorate. Um, you, when you are armed with that type of ammunition, if you will, uh, you will always have um, what you need to, to fuel your career. Uh, you will always be employable. Um, I, there is a dollar amount that maybe makes it uh, cost prohibitive for some, mm-hmm. um, but I will say, that, yeah. Uh, but I would say that you know, a law degree is is a is is an education that is that applies across a lot of platforms. The analytical ability that you have, the strategic thinking, the critical thinking, you can apply that to banking. You can apply that to education. You can apply that to uh, not for profits. Um, you you you. It's just the type of degree that um, is applicable no matter what your career choice you make. So I've encouraged people to do just that, um, to go out and and if they're, you don't have to want to be a litigator to go, you know, you don't, your goal is to get the law school education. Uh, Doesn't always have to be, uh, the end goal doesn't have to be to become a litigator or become a lawyer or to become a licensed attorney, right? Just the education alone puts you uh, light years ahead of some of your competition um, when you're looking at, you know, establishing a career, uh, it, it, it is, it is, uh, an extremely, uh, valuable and, um, and, uh, useful, uh, tool that you should have if you can afford it. Okay. That's helpful. I hear that there is an intellectual property attorney over at Loyola that I might know. So <laughs> I've been thinking about it. <laughs> Yeah. I've been thinking about maybe auditing one of his classes and see if I if I want to go that route. Yeah, he's tough though. He's going to ask you a lot of questions. <laughs> might be tougher on you. <laughs> yeah, it might be tougher on me. That's okay. I think I can handle it. <laughs> I think I can take it. Yeah. Well, thank you so so much, Godfather um, Lance Esquire for having this conversation. It has not only been so valuable to me, but I think it'll be valuable to my listeners who are creatives and who are trying to figure it out and who aren't necessarily dealing with big companies. This is supremely valuable and I appreciate you being here. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me and uh, good luck to you and all of your listeners. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. So um, you all, you can follow us at Hazes Higher Learning. Make sure you check the Instagram page. I'll not only be putting some of the gems that we got today on the page, but I'll also put out some graphics that detail the difference between like a license and an assignment so that you all can have tangible information. That's what Hazes Higher Learning is about. Um, I did not think of a song of the week, so I will put that on the web page. But thank you all so much for tuning into Hazes Higher Learning. We're together we are learning better, doing better, and being better. You all have a wonderful week.